baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. If we were sitting down for a conversation with Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle a month ago, it would be very, very different a conversation than we will have this weekend, which is why we need to have it. COVID-19, the coronavirus, has changed everything. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. In the past few weeks, we have seen the coronavirus pandemic grow into a world-changing calamity, and governments around the globe are taking various levels of action with various levels of success. And through all of this, it's been the state and local governments that have shown through. You've heard a lot about the city of Chicago and the state actions to combat the virus and help people affected by the illness and stay-at-home orders just extended by the state. Now we're going to talk with Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle about what the county is doing and what COVID-19 is doing to the county and its health system. We're recording this in President Preckwinkle's office in the county building, keeping some safe distance between us. And yes, the offices here and in City Hall are mostly empty because of the restrictions. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle, thanks for taking the time. First, I should ask, how are you? I'm good, Craig. Thank you very much. Well, this is becoming a cliche. We keep hearing over and over again that the coronavirus contagion is nothing like we've ever seen or experienced before, but it really isn't like anything else. I mean, the Chicago City Council is trying to engineer a virtual council meeting for the first time ever. Uh, The Democrats are postponing their national political convention in an election year. And, oh, yeah, the elections, that too, which must run somehow. I mean, what hasn't COVID-19 affected, but... President Preckwinkle, the biggest concern these days is health care, and perhaps the biggest health care institution in this area is run by Cook County. So first, how is the health system doing? Well, thank you very much, Craig. You know, I want our, our listeners to understand that health care is a critical part of county government. About 46 percent of our budget is our health care system. And that's Stroger Hospital, Provident Hospital, 16 clinics, and of course a Medicaid expansion program called County Care. And this is a very, a very difficult time for our health care system. We know that we will be inundated with patients as the surge approaches. I think uh, Governor Pritzker has predicted that mid to late April we'll see the, the most cases of the disease. And we're we're working hard to be prepared, uh, both in hospital beds and personal protective equipment for our uh, healthcare staff and patients. Uh, but it's going to be a it's going to be a really significant uh, challenge. And I'm very grateful to Deborah Carey, our interim chief executive officer, and her team for their good work. First, people are hearing so much about the uh, personal protective equipment, the PPEs, that we should ask. Does the hospital system, the healthcare system, have what it needs at this point? Well, I think this is a day-to-day issue. 
Bill Barnes, the, the head of our Department of Emergency Management and Regional Security, has been tasked with securing personal protective equipment for our hospital staff, our, our clinic staff, um, our jail personnel. Uh, and he and his team have done yeoman work uh, over the last uh, several months to try to find personal protective equipment. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a national policy uh, to secure uh, such an inventory, and so states and local governments are kind of on their own uh, on this uh, acquisition, uh, through this acquisition process, and that makes it very, very challenging. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, I can safely say that there's been a failure of federal leadership at a lot of levels as we've struggled with this pandemic. Um, and amidst all of this struggle, we also understand that, I mean, people who have uh, seen you at news conferences on this have seen Dr. Terry Mason standing b beside you. And uh, I understand that on Friday, uh, the doctor was terminated. What happened? Well, first thing I, I want to say is we've got a, a, a strong leadership team in our Department of Public Health uh, and leaders who've been there for years. The Department of Public Health will continue to be on the front line of our response to the pandemic. It will now be led by Dr. Rachel Rubin and Dr. Kieran Joshi, uh, co-leaders of the Department of Public Health. And this is a personnel matter that it's uh, inappropriate for me to discuss beyond that. Can you say nothing about why Dr. Mason had to leave at this time in the middle of this crisis? Uh, this is a personnel matter, and I have confidence in uh, Deborah Carey, who is our interim CEO, and the decisions that she's made. And the co-leaders of the department going forward, as I said, will be Dr. Rachel Rubin and Dr. Kieran Joshi. Both of them are physicians. Um, one other area that we do need to talk about is the facilities themselves. And I also understand that uh, you're having to make some, um, some serious changes at Provident Hospital. Well, first of all, uh, Provident Hospital um, is the second of our two hospitals. Stroger, of course, is our flagship hospital. Uh, as we've looked at Provident, we've determined that the emergency room, the emergency department, it's called ED, uh, does not allow for social distancing. So that's a challenge both for our patients as they walk in the door and our medical staff. So we'll be closing the emergency room at Provident in order to reconfigure it so that social distancing is possible as we struggle to deal with the uh, pandemic. And we're talking with our hospital partners in the surrounding uh, Southside area to make them aware of this. Um, and it truly will be a challenge for them as we close our emergency room. Uh, but it's what we have to do in order to uh, prevent the spread of the disease and protect our healthcare staff and patients who come in. So at Provident, at first we will be closing the emergency room, the emergency department, until uh, early May. We are also closing our ICU beds. We have six uh, intensive care unit beds. They will be closed. We only have two patients in those beds. Those patients will be moved to Stroger. And the entire ICU uh, beds, those six beds, will be added to our inventory at Providence so we can serve COVID-19 uh, patients. In addition, there's the capacity at Providence to expand beyond our present two dozen beds, add 50 more beds to the total. And we are preparing to do that so that we can uh, meet the needs of, uh, for hospitalization of COVID-19 positive individuals. So um, some significant changes at Provident as a result of the pandemic. Uh, 
but after some real uh, uh, crush at, and when you don't have that capacity while things are being reworked, um, but at the end, it will be a net gain? Well, we, we have the capacity to add rooms, hospital rooms at Provident, and we're going to do that. Our present uh, hospital um, patient population is two dozen at most, and we're going to expand it. We're going to add 50 hospital beds at Provident to deal with the surge in, in patients that we expect over the next couple of weeks. But a sur and so far, a surge that you haven't seen yet, right? So this is, this is a, a little bit of breathing room? Well, the governor is predicting that the, the, the surge, the peak of, of, uh, of, of infected individuals will be sometime in mid to late April. Can I ask if, if county government itself has been has been hit hard with illness? I mean, are you having many people? I don't know how many patients, what the count is of patients uh, within the government. I frankly don't know either. Um, you know, we hope and pray that all of our patients will remain uh, safe and healthy, but we know that this is a pandemic, so. And I, I sort of also meant employees, that if you've had any uh, employees who've had to, who've been stricken by the illness. Um, one in the Department of Revenue. That's all I'm aware of. Mm. Um, you know, how do you coordinate this kind of response when you've got a government that, that spreads throughout a large county and across so many municipalities and the towns and villages that are, are all being staffed by skeleton crews? Is, does, is that in, a, in and of itself a challenge of trying to get just everyday things done. Of course. I mean, let me just say, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm deeply indebted to my chief of staff, uh, Lynetta Haynes Turner, uh, and the team that uh, we've put together in the county. I'm I'm proud of the good work that's being done under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Uh, Bill Barnes and Ted Berger, uh, our team at Emergency Management and Regional Security, have uh, just done extraordinary work. I'm grateful to them as well. Um, so we we have. Clearly some real challenges brought on by the pandemic, but we're blessed with a great team. I can't go very far into this without asking you, what is all of this going to do to the county's budget? Well, I think all, government at all levels uh, will be devastated. I mean, there's just no way around it. I, I, I spoke earlier about our health and hospital system and the fact that um, you know, we can't do elective surgeries, for example, which is a source of revenue for our health and hospital system because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has said that no more elective, to all hospitals around the country, no more elective surgery because we need to preserve the hospital beds and our medical staff to deal with COVID-19. Okay, so we, we don't have that source of revenue. We're gonna be heavily impacted because we will have patients who are uninsured or underinsured and we will take care of them because we've always taken whoever comes to the door for 180 years. Regardless of their ability to pay, their, their race, their religion, their gender, their sexual orientation. I'm proud of that, and that will continue through this pandemic. But that will have a, a substantial financial uh, impact on our health and hospital system. So on one hand, we're denied revenue from elective surgeries. On the other hand, we're going to have more patients uninsured who are going to need intensive and uh, significant um, medical care. And we've talked about this statistic before, but I think it bears repeating whenever we talk about the health care system the county is doing the overwhelming bulk of the care for indigent patients. We provide, there's 68 hospitals in Cook County, 68. And our two hospitals, Stroger and Provident, provide about 
of the charity care for the entire county. So our two hospitals provide almost half of the charity care that's delivered by hospitals in the entire county. Um, And while we're talking about people in need, I know we hear a lot about relief that is available for business people, uh, and we can talk some more about that in this half hour, but I think everyday people who are being told to stay home and not go to work, in this economy, a lot of those people don't get paid if they don't show up, but they do have rents, they do have mortgages, they do have bills to pay for utilities. What's out there? I mean, what relief is there going to be for those people, especially if we're extending this another month? Well, as you know, there's a portion of the the federal legislation, the federal stimulus legislation that will provide checks of $1,200 to many Americans. I think if you make less than $70,000 a year, you're eligible for a check, and then there's some gradation reduction, you know, as you earn more money. That will be helpful, uh, but that's not nearly enough. Um, and I hope there will be subsequent stimulus, stimulus packages that address, you know, these individual needs. We announced earlier this week at a press conference, you may be aware, a program that we're um, initiating to help small businesses, um, individual uh, independent contractors, gig workers get assistance through that stimulus bill. There's $377 billion that's been put aside to assist small businesses, independent contractors, gig workers. Um, And we have a a team of our um, delegate agencies and uh, partners that will provide information about how to apply for that money. Um, The Illinois Restaurant Association, Sam Toya, represented them at the press conference. Rebecca Shee from the American um, Immigration and Business Council, AIBC, I think. Um, And uh, Luis Garza was there from... Um, the National Partnership for New Americans. So we have delegate agencies and partners where we're working with to help individuals, business owners, gig workers access that $377 billion. And it will be on a first-come, first-served basis. So helping people, um, uh, directing them on how to, how to uh, apply for that money and hopefully secure it is an important part of what we're doing. And um, later, hopefully this week, we'll be announcing plans for other ways in which we hope to assist small businesses. But this is an important part of the county's work, and we're doing it with our partners. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. We're recording this in her office with some social distance between us. Thankfully, we have long mic cords. Uh, But uh, let's let's talk about what kind of uh, help well, not, not necessarily help in this case, but what are the circumstances at the county jail, which is another part of a, a significant part of the county's budget and, and, and another part where you have to worry about illness and everything else, and especially when you've got people who are not socially distant? Well, I usually describe our jail as a Petri dish. You know, it's the equivalent in, in government of nursing homes or cruise ships or battleships. Uh, places where it's very difficult to maintain social distancing. For more than a year, we had 6,000 people roughly in a daily census in the jail. Um, We have worked hard over the last uh, weeks and months to reduce that population. I'm very grateful to Sheriff Tom Dart, to Chief Judge uh, Tim Evans, to State's Attorney Kim Fox, to 
public defender uh, Amy Campanelli, all of whom have been working hard to reduce our jail population by releasing those who are accused of nonviolent crimes and are no danger to the community or themselves. So last Friday, the jail population was down to 5,000. Uh, earlier this week, it was down to the mid 400s. Um, and last Friday, when the jail population was 5,000, Sheriff Dart said that he thought there were another 1,000 people who could be safely released. So we're trying to get the jail population down to 4,000 because we know that whoever is in the jail is going to be, have heightened vulnerability to COVID-19. Um, this is a, jails are very problematic places when it comes to pandemics. It's very difficult, as you say, to maintain social distancing. The sheriff believes that he can, with a jail population of 4,000, provide each detainee with an individual cell, which of course helps reduce um, the social interactions, the closeness that spread the disease. But the jail is still a di very difficult place in which to contain a pandemic. But you also have a public that's still gets a little antsy when it hears about people who were being held behind bars released. And I don't know that people always feel as comforted, especially when we still have violence in the streets every weekend. Well, you know, what you have to understand is we've been working very hard to reduce the jail population for the last three or four years. And the murders and shootings in Chicago reached their height in 2016. 2016. They've gone down every year since. So... 2016 was the height of shootings and murders, and that's about the time when we really began to focus most seriously on reducing the jail population. So at the same time, at the very same time that we were reducing the jail population, the murders and shootings have gone down. The people that we've been releasing are people accused of nonviolent crimes who are basically too poor to pay bail. We've reduced reliance on cash, cash bond, cash bail, and that has helped us reduce the jail population at the same time that there's been this trend year over year of reductions in murder and, 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 and shootings. So I think the public has to understand that we've been able to do this safely. Um, I want to turn to one other uh, COVID-19 topic. Not that any, any topic we're going to talk about is going to be affected by COVID-19, but, but compliance, major problem in Chicago that finally caused um, the uh, mayor Lightfoot to, uh, to A, get angry, and B, crack down on uh, flagrant violations on the lakefront. How has compliance been in the areas where the county has jurisdiction? In our forest preserves, we've closed all of our visitor centers, all of our nature centers. We've uh, not allowed any permitted activities such as you know, picnics, barbecues, reunions until mid-May. However, the forest preserves remain open, and they will continue to remain open as long as people maintain social distancing um, and do not congregate in groups. And if we find that that's a challenge, we will close those parts of the forest preserves where people are not compliant. But I think it's really important to maintain open spaces where people can go for walks, get fresh air, get out of their houses, as long as they do so safely, as long as they adhere to the social distancing requirements of all of us in a pandemic, as long as people are responsible. Have you had many reported instances where people were basically ignoring the rules and having big gatherings? We had some parts of the preserves where um, folks were not maintaining social distancing. We sent our police officers there to tell folks, basically, either you comply or we close the, this, this part of the preserves. But you have to understand, 
Craig, that we have 70,000 acres in the preserves. So the preserves are huge. So there's lots of opportunity for people to go on walks, on hikes, to go biking, whatever, across the county, uh, and to maintain social distancing. Another uh, area that I want to talk about is the census, because this was supposed to be the big public relations push for the census this week, and it was drowned out by what's going on with COVID-19, but it's still there, and it's happening. We, um, we had a press conference in the middle of the week, as you may recall, uh, with staff, uh, Ms. Sanders, from the U.S. Census Bureau, our yeah, regional, regional director, director. Yeah. our regional director, and, and others, uh, to talk about the importance of the census and participating in the census. You know, COVID-19 is, is surely the, the, the topic of the day, always, for the duration, but we have to remember that every every decade since ni- since 1790, every decade since 1790, this country has conducted a census, and the census numbers are the basis for per capita reimbursements to states, per person reimbursements for states, for education, for health care, for infrastructure, for roads and bridges. Every person in Cook County who's counted means $1,400 a year that comes into our county to local units of government of all descriptions. So over the course of a decade, that's $14,000. So every every person who's not counted costs local units of government $14,000 in Cook County. So it's really important that even in in the midst of the pandemic that we respond to the census. And, you know, I asked my daughter to do it for our family, and she said it took her a couple minutes, so. Yes, I've I've seen the uh, the form, at least the one online, and we still run into the problem that not everybody... Has can has an online that they can get to, and that's that's a difficulty, and still some populations that are leery of it. Right, uh, they're going to mail forms to people who don't respond online, but you know, the, frankly, uh, the president of the United States discouraged participation by trying to insert a question around citizenship in the census. He was forbidden to do that by the courts, but I think that still makes people um, wary, people who may not be documented, wary of participating. Census information cannot be used for any other purpose than uh, census purposes. So it's really important that everyone participate, whether you're a resident or a citizen, everyone participates uh, because it means dollars to serve you. It means money coming back from the federal government to our local units of government. And it also impacts our representation in Congress. We're going to lose one seat in the state of Illinois for sure because of demographic shifts, and we may lose two seats if we don't have a good census count. And, and conceivably, even some of the uh, the stimulus or the and, and that's probably a misnomer. It's more like disaster relief. It's disaster relief, yeah. Uh, but the the uh, stimulus package, some of that money could be judged by population too, admittedly from the last census. But still, right, those counts mean something. Right. It's it's very important that that people participate. It's a, it's an it's your obligation as a resident of this country. Uh, and as I said, it impacts resources that local units of government have to serve you and your representation in Congress. Um, I do want to talk about politics a little bit here, um, but it's more general. Again, what's your your concern or your fear as we go through a year like this and a presidential election that is, you know, we're not even sure how we're going to be voting in November. I mean, people, other people are going to want to do it by mail or some other technical way. It's been suggested to me that I ought to be pushing for 
um, vote by mail across the country. I don't know what the Congress is going to decide about that, um, but I think we have to look at the impacts that the COVID-19 virus may have on the electoral process. But let me just say, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that this is a challenge that's going to be with us for the next several years. So, you know, better or worse, I'm a history teacher. And the last time we had a pandemic of this magnitude was basically 1917 to 1919. And it lasted for two years. And it's going to take us at least 18 months to get a vaccine. And that's the only way in which, over the long term, we're going to deal with this. We need a vaccine. And it's going to take our scientists and our pharmaceutical companies at least a year and a half because you have not just develop the vaccine, but test it on animals and people. Um, and until we have that vaccine, we really are not going to be able to manage um, this epidemic. So we have people have to understand we're in this for the long haul, and it's going to be impacting us in a myriad of ways for a very long time. You're the chair of the Cook County Democratic Party, uh, and in in some circles, you would be you would be thinking about campaigns and and people running for office the traditional way. How are people going to adapt when you can't have the kind of gatherings that we were having, and even even if the restrictions are lifted, people are going to be a little hesitant to go into big crowds from now on. Uh, I mean, well, I see, I see kind of a hiatus in um, both campaigning and, and politicking uh, more generally uh, until the fall, frankly. Um, and then we'll have a pretty very short campaign to the November election. Um, that's my expectation. It may be cheaper, but <laughs> for at least for the campaigns, but uh, for the... Uh, the newspapers and uh, TV stations that run the ads, probably not a great time for them. But are, are, you, uh, are you disturbed by what's happened to the presidential campaign in, the, in the, the minute or two that we have left? That after, I mean, the, the Democratic uh, convention is going to be pushed back and President Trump every night is on television for an hour and a half. Uh, talking about uh, how the administration is doing while the, the Democrats are basically holed up in their homes. I don't think his response to the pandemic has been presidential. He refused to acknowledge in the beginning the magnitude of the challenge that we faced across this country. He has not mandated a national shelter-in-place requirement, which it seems to me be obvious, um, and not to mention the fact that the procurement of personal protective equipment and ventilators seems to be um, inept. I think his handling of the crisis has been a disaster, and hopefully the American people agree with me. Do you think it's something that the American people can see as readily as people who are in the trenches can? Um, because when they see all of a sudden, like he did this past week, uh, here he says, this is really serious and we need to get, get serious about this. Even if it was late, people, that's, isn't that the image they carry with them? Everyone knows somebody who's ill and more and more people will know somebody who's passed away. And the magnitude of the illness and the people who succumbed is a reflection on our ineffective initial response to the pandemic. And I think that will come back to haunt him. Um, and the last thing, because we have about 30 seconds left, is what do you think are going to be the lasting effects of this? I mean, do you think the how do you think the world's going to change because of what we're going through right now? I, I, I can't hope to speculate on that. I... Um, 
I mean, because you, I, because I'm a history teacher, as soon as this happened in China, I began to focus on what might impacts be on us. But um, we, I have no we, I, I have no idea. Are we ever going <laughs> to shake hands again? <laughs> <laughs> or give your family and friends hugs? I, it's yeah. hard to know. <laughs> well, that is Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. Thank you very much for spending this half hour with me. I very much appreciate it. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's WBBMNewsRadio.com. Just follow the podcast links. You can also find our podcasts on Radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 